You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Salem, why don't you stand for today's reading? It's not the gospel, but I just wanted you to stand. Because I like telling people what to do. Because at home, I only get told what to do. And it's always right. Second Peter. For this very reason, make every effort. Everybody say effort. To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. This is all you have to do. And knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, just be godly, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, everybody say increasing, you don't have to have them in full effect, they just need to be growing slowly. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind Having forgotten, everybody say forgotten. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if these qualities are not yours, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you forgot your. Therefore, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore... I intend always to remind you, everybody say remind, to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Even though you know them, I'm still going to remind you of them. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of... Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, hopefully mine will not be, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Jesus has not made that clear to me. I'm just quoting Peter. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall or remember these things. Heavenly Father, I pray an anointing on this room to hear this sermon of reminder I pray that you would anoint me to make preaching easy. I pray that you would anoint the congregation here and those at home to make hearing your word a delight. And may the seed of this word find good soil today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everybody said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. Every year around this midway point of the church year, I have preached this sermon. This sermon is so near and dear to my heart as a person. This sermon was originally given to me in 2013 when I was in sort of a pretty dark place wondering what my calling, what my purpose, what was it that I was supposed to do. This is before I realized that my calling and my purpose is Jesus, just like everybody else's. Our calling and our purpose is not a job or it's not what we do for a living. Our calling and purpose is always Jesus. What we do for a living is the location where our calling executes itself. So there's no such thing as the wrong job. There's no such thing as a job you're not called to. There's no such thing as a station in life. God, this isn't what God had for me. Wherever you are, if you can reveal Jesus there, you are living into your calling and your purpose, period. 
That is the good news of the gospel, that wherever you are, Jesus is Lord and Savior of that place, and you get to live that out in front of everybody. So I was in this place. I was working at a daycare center, which is why I personally am so patient when the voices of little angels cry out all around the room, because I had like 26 of them, and they would always, can you, can you go down there during nap time? No. Can you? They're terrible. They're, have you ever tried to put 20 kids to sleep? Jesus is laughing. He's like, oh, I walked on water. I did not try to do that. And right there, God gave me Psalm 126. Sophia, you find that funny? That's ironic. Psalm 126, 127, and 128. 2013, we lived Psalm 126. 2014, we lived 127. And 2015 and 16, we lived Psalm 128. This sermon is, yes, I've preached it before. And why do I feel okay preaching a sermon I've already preached? Because Peter just said, I'm going to remind you even though you know. And this is just, this is coming from my heart. So every year, right at the halfway point, I want to remind the church, what does it mean? To, and you've heard me pray this. I've prayed this sermon. I've narrowed it down into a, into a very basic prayer. And the prayer is, Lord May we sow our hearts into the gospel faithfully. May we wait in life's unresolved issues patiently. And may we reap the fruit of the Spirit for the life of the world generously. Sowing, waiting, reaping, faithful, patient, generous. This is the backbone. Every time I write a sermon, every time I do a memorial service, every time I write a homily for a wedding, every time I sit down in marriage counseling, every time we're going through something at home, every time I'm going to talk to somebody about God, the Holy Spirit has said, filter what you say through this paradigm. Sowing, waiting, reaping. And we've heard it before, but this is the way God told it to me. And so I want to share with you and remind ourselves, what does it mean to sow our hearts into the gospel? What does it mean to wait in the midst of life's unresolved issues? And what does it mean to reap the fruit of the Spirit for the life of the world? So let's begin. Let's read Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad indeed. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We'll talk about this at the end, but whenever you read a psalm, ask yourself, how did Jesus read this, and how did he live it out? It's so important to do that. Sowing our hearts into the gospel is the first act of every Christian. The first act of every Christian is not to get saved. That is something God does to you. God seeks you out, finds you, gives you the gift of salvation, our first job is to sow our heart into that salvation that we've been given. To sow our heart into the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? I'm going to do my best to give you the most simple. This sermon took me a very long time to prepare because I just wanted to keep whittling it down and making it more simple and more simple. 
Here is what the gospel is. The gospel is the promise that what is now true in Christ will one day be true for all of us. The gospel is the promise that what is true in Jesus will one day be true in all of us and in the world and the cosmos that we're living in. What is the truth in Jesus? That he has been raised from the dead and that death and sickness and injustice and oppression no longer have a claim on his life. And one day that will be true of us. And so our life is spent sowing into the hope that one day our life will be made just like Jesus' life. This is why Jesus said, Father, make them one even as you and me are one. This is why Jesus said, abide in me and I will abide in you. This oneness, our life becoming one with his life and us having the same authority over sickness and death that he had will one day be ours. But it's not ours right now. It is in faith, but it's not in practice. Has anybody turned on the TV lately? The world has not been made like Jesus yet. Fair? We sow into the hope that one day what is true of Christ will be true of us. But what does it say? This sowing is done in tears because you have to get rid of whatever is in your life that, is, that you're deriving your truth and your salvation from. And you need to sow it into the salvation Christ brings. And here's where, where pastoring is the worst I can't make you know what that is as much as I would want to, but we have to be honest with ourselves. What is our Savior really? In my mouth and in my brain, it's Jesus, but in my heart and in my gut, what really do I go for for salvation? What really makes me feel like I'm alive? What really makes me feel like life matters? For some of us these days, it's control. When I can control my life, I'm calmer, I'm easygoing. I have the fruit of the Spirit in my life when I can control what other people do and what happens in my life. That means that control is our cross that is saving us. For some of us, it's food. For some of us, it's entertainment. For some of us, it's work. For some of us, it's education. For some of us, it's the way our family's going to turn out. For some of us, it's having a family. Whatever it is. And it's usually something you don't have, like control. <laughs> so, the thing that you treasure most that's not Jesus. Offer it. Offer it to God. Because the more you hold on to it, the more it has you. You don't have it. The more it has you, you don't have it. The thing that you can't let go of, the thing that you hold on to the tightest, the more tightly you hold on to it, you look like you have it, but it has you all wrapped up in its hand. Sow it into the hope that what is true in Christ will one day be true in you because of what Jesus is doing. How do, we find the, how do we find the motivation to do that? It's simple. It's in the psalm. When the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. Then, back then, was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us. 
Now they're saying, Lord, restore our fortunes again. So what do you have? You have, in the moment, you have a memory of what God has done, and that memory is being processed in the present to pray that one day what God has done, he'll do again. And so what do we have as Christians? We have right here a history of what God has done. This book is a history of what God has done, and this book makes a promise of what God is going to do. And we stand in between what God has done and what he's one day going to do, and we decide, what history and promise am I going to sow my heart into? We all have a history, and every one of our histories is making promises to us. We all have a history of success, and that success is telling you you're going to have more success, and then you find out that promise maybe isn't going to come true. Some of us have histories of failure or abuse, and those histories are saying same thing's going to happen to you again. There's no reason to get excited about a good week because you know that your history tells you that all you'll ever have is a good week, and then it's all going to fall apart again. But the gospel wants to preach a sermon to your history and then preach a sermon to the way that that history is promising you things. The gospel is the history that wants to absorb our histories and the gospel is the promise that wants to absorb our promises and redefine them entirely. And so how do we sow our heart into the gospel? First, you fill yourself in the community of believers called the church. Pastor, it sounds like you're on this rant lately. Yes, because the first thing you said was pastor. Okay? Some wolves are unique to a church, and we have ours, and some wolves are the same because Satan has got the same old tired temptations all the time anyway. So if I sound like I'm repeating myself, it's just because Satan's not all that creative. We are tempted to see our church as a positive place for our life, not the essential fountain from which we're called to drink. This is where the gospel is first announced. This is where the gospel is first celebrated. This is where the altar is first knelt at. This is where God first speaks over our life in a week, and then we leave full on that when we go into all the world. But the more we forsake the assembly, the gathering, the the dinner tables, the living rooms, the Zoom chats, the FaceTimes, and all the other things that we have to do, the more we forsake that, the less we're sowing our heart into the gospel, and we're living into our personal histories, no longer Jesus when I'm away from you all I will start to be more obsessed with my history personally and the promises it's making me but when I'm around you I'm reminded that the history of Jesus is real and therefore the promises he makes are too you are the only way I can grow as a Christian you are the only way that I can be fed as a Christian I'm not saying this rhetorically I'm saying this this is my truth I cannot grow as a Christian apart from the faces I'm looking at right now and the faces looking at me. I cannot grow as a Christian without you because I can't, you ready? I can't say I'm in love with Jesus if I never touch his body. So ask yourself, and if I'm preaching to the choir, write it down and re-preach this to somebody who's not here for me. Thank you. But I'm saying right now, if your association with the church was the same, uh, if, if it was equated to whatever romantic relationship you're in, ask yourself, 
If I loved the person I was with the way that I loved Jesus by touching his body, the church, would it be a healthy relationship? Because there's a lot of people who love Jesus, but they only touch his body once a month. I'm sure Jacqueline would just love if I told her I loved her all the time, but I never lent a hand to help clean up or put my arm around her or told her how beautiful she is or embraced her. But some of us do that to Jesus all the time, and we say we're sowing our heart into the gospel. No, we're not. We're sowing our heart into convenience and preference. And what we will reap is inconvenience and things that are not our preference. You sow your heart into the gospel by sowing your life into the community of faith God has called you to. My whole life has grown in this room because of you, because of the Holy Spirit working through you. How else do you sow your heart into the gospel? Ask yourself, all the blessings that God has given me, are they blessing other people who don't have those blessings? There's another way you sow your heart into the gospel. We pray, we tithe, we give, we organize our life, we try to live all the Proverbs. We get to Proverbs 1 verse 3 and fail, but we try really, really hard to live all the Proverbs, and we do all these things, and then God blesses us, and, and, then, and then our blessings create anxiety because we want to keep them. And it's like, now i got to work really hard because i got a house. You know, like, we really bought a house last year, and I'm like, Why? Why have we done that to ourselves? Every time it creaks in the night, I'm like, ah, it's like ka-ching, that's all I hear. I'm like, Sophia, don't walk on the floor. You cannot walk on the floor. Levitate across the floor because you scratch. Like, all of a sudden we get the blessings we prayed for and then the blessings cause us to live in such idolatry and fear of losing them that our prayer life becomes really the maintenance of our blessings. How many prayed for good health? Yeah, so have I. And then you get it. Do you use it to bless somebody else's life, or do you use it to work more to get more blessings? This is how we sow into the gospel. You offer, every song they sang today was about Christ offering everything he has to the other. That's how you sow your heart into the gospel. That's how you reap gospel things in your life. Sow your heart into the gospel faithfully. It's the good news that what is true of Jesus will one day be true of us. Are we sowing our hearts into that news or are we sowing our hearts into all the other news that we hear every day? Without the church, without your Bible, without each other, we will easily sow our hearts into the false news that we're hearing all the time. This is the only true news, and this is the news that makes other news true. This is the news that makes other news make sense. This is the still waters. All the other news is tumultuous waves. This is the green pastures. Everything else is fast food. This is health, which is why you sow in tears, because everybody knows a number six biggie size at Wednesday, Wendy's tastes a lot better than kale chips. Sow in tears, you'll be more healthy. Sophia, where are we going for lunch today with Mommy Lee's? I'll go Wendy's.
Next, wait. Everybody loves this, wait. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks to his enemies in the gate. I don't understand that last verse ever at all. Having children will make you not ashamed when you speak to your enemies in the gate. I think sometimes our children are our enemies in the gate. What happens then, God? Do you have Psalm 127 and a half when that happens? I want you to hear that psalm and hear the thing about children uh, as an analogy for production being productive, being productive in life, okay? And it starts with, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. See, there's this moment where you've worked really, really hard, and then you stand in an unresolved issue. And how do you define an unresolved issue? An unresolved issue is simply an issue that could still go one of two ways. It's a thing in your life that hasn't finished being what it's ultimately going to be yet. It can still go either way. So let me make this easy. You are a walking unresolved issue. You can still go one of two ways. We can go one of 45,652 different ways. We're not done being resolved yet. The Holy Spirit is still resolving our life. The world is not resolved yet. We're waiting for Jesus to come. He's coming right now through his spirit. He's one day going to come back physically and resolve what is wrong in the world? Everything in our life is essentially unresolved. The lie is that we can find stability in resolved issues. Everything is unresolved. Nothing. Here, here's what I always like to say. I hope, I hope that the world isn't as good as it's going to get. I don't want this to be resolved. I don't want this to end up being the best that there is. I need to know in every fiber of my being that God has more for us than this. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, what does God say? He says, you've eaten the fruit that I told you not to eat. And listen very carefully. Then he says, and now lest you reach out your hand and eat from the tree of life, I'm removing you from the garden. Why did he say that? Because he said, you are now fallen and broken. If you reach out now and eat from the tree of life, you will forever be fallen and broken. So not out of punishment, but out of love, he removes us from the garden so that we don't stay in the state that we were in after we fell. It wasn't a punishment. It was an act of parental love to say, now that you're like this, I don't want you to be resolved like this. I want to resolve you, and then when you're resolved, then you can come and eat freely from the tree of life. Waiting in the midst of life's unresolved issues teaches you to ask a new question. The question we always ask is, what am I producing? Salem, you live, we live, I live under the tyranny of the question, what am I producing? But waiting teaches us to say, what is God producing in and through me?
what am I producing is slavery. To live under that question is enslaving on every level. But to say, in seasons where God makes you have to wait, what are you producing in me that my busyness was keeping me from seeing? I don't know if anybody knows this, but I'm walking around with a really dope new shoe on. It's the new style, right, Dan? It's the new style of shoe called the walking boot. I tried to be an influencer on Instagram. Nobody cares about it. I was hoping one day everybody, would like, like in the stadiums, you know, like if somebody's got a goatee, somebody dresses up in the stadium like a goatee. I was hoping you guys would start coming to church with like a boot on, like just to support the cause. But nobody is, so thank you. This was supposed to be healed a long time ago. Here's what's happening. I'm going to the city on Tuesday because I'm getting surgery. Because it didn't heal the way it was supposed to heal. Now here's a very quick monologue of my life. Last summer, as an extreme extrovert, as somebody who needs interaction all of the time to feel awake and enlivened, last summer was horrible. We were just stuck inside and we couldn't see anybody. And all last year I said, God, when we get to the summer of 2021, I'm going to jog, I'm going to walk, I'm going to have this amazing time, everybody's coming over the house, I'm going to learn to do cartwheels, I'm going to do a backflip, I'm going to teach Sophia how to play soccer, all this stuff. And then I stepped on one of her frozen dolls and broke my foot. Children, put your toys away. Put them away. Now, I'm finding myself saying this. First, how come when it's finally opening back up, when restrictions are finally going away, my daughter is in softball, she's playing soccer, what we just talked about, basketball, like how I can't do anything. Why would I finally get here and now this is happening? Then quickly on the heels of that comes when this is resolved, I am really, really going to live differently. But that's what I said last year. Said the same thing about COVID. We, were, we weren't too busy during COVID because we couldn't be. And every one of us said, you know what? We don't need to be as busy as we've been. Look at this. You can work from home and drink at 10.30 a.m. Anybody who laughs longer than the original laugh is guilty of it. Just so you know. Some kids just laughed. We said last year, once this is over, we're going to redo our schedule, we're going to Sabbath more, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, when, 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 when. And then something else comes and now it's like, okay, so COVID is over, but now my foot's broken. So as soon as this is done, then I'm going to. Well, you know what, as soon as this is done, then I got a few weddings to do and Theo's going to be born. So as soon as we get done with all of that, then I'm really going to jump in. And then it's the holidays. As soon as we get past the holidays, then I'm going to, like I'm all the way down almost to where Jeff is now. Because then, 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 based on when, when this is done, when this gets resolved, when I'm on the other side of this, when I get promoted, when I have a family, when I have a kid, when he starts to act right, when he starts to treat me right, all of these whens, all they produce is quicksand, and the more you move, the more you sink. The tyranny of when needs to be destroyed so we can be given the gift of because. Write that down. The when needs to turn into a because. Not when my foot heals. 
will I start to live right. But because Jesus is happening to me, while my foot's broken, I can change my life now. The when that is rooted in you has to become a because that is rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. When my marriage is finally healed, we'll start being social again. No. Because Jesus is in the midst of your pain, you can be social while you're going through it. When I have a job that I'm happy with, then I'll start to dot, dot, dot. No. Because Jesus is with you in the job that you hate, you can start doing those things now. Waiting helps us turn the when into a because. When my kids are finally back in school and we're done homeschooling. No. Because Jesus is with you in that mind-numbing craziness, you can do all things through Christ who's giving you strength. Waiting teaches us to stop saying when and to start saying because. Because on the other side of your when is another when. And then another one and another one. They're piled up. But there's always a because. There's always a because. And the reverse of Psalm 127 is true. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But the opposite is true. Because God's building the house, those who build aren't laboring in vain. When Jesus reads Psalm 127, he reads it the opposite. We read, unless God builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And Jesus reads it and says, because I'll never stop building the house, those who build it, their work will never be in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Because he's building, you can build. Because he's protecting you, you can rest. Because he's in control, you don't always have to feel like you are. I see you, punk. Reaping, that's everybody's favorite thing. I'll ruin that for you right now. Psalm 128. Holy smokes. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. I want to pause. I want you to hear Jesus reading this. Imagine this psalm is a psalm, you ready, that God the Father is saying to his son. So imagine Jesus is hearing this from the Father. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat, Jesus, the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife, the church, will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children, all of those who will be born again, will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. Jesus, may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, the city that you stood weeping over. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your eternal life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. That is a word that God has given to us because it's a word that God has given to Jesus. And because it's true in Christ, it is true for us. 
We are the bride that is bearing fruit in God's house with Christ. The thing about reaping is this. Does everybody remember the story of the spies? Where uh, Israel is in the wilderness, and in the wilderness, Moses says, why don't you go and spy out the promised land? And so 10 spies go and spy out the promised land, and they come back, and what do they come back with? Say it louder. Grapes. Uh, They come back with grapes. Who doesn't like grapes? Especially when they ferment. They come back with grapes, and what do they do with the grapes? They bring them into the wilderness. They go into the promised land and bring grapes into the wilderness. And what is the wilderness? It's the place of waiting. It's, in, it's after Egypt, but it's before promised land. It's the place of waiting. And so the spies go into the promised land and bring fruit into the wilderness, and the fruit proves to the people in the wilderness that there really is a promised land. So in Galatians, when it tells us to produce the fruit of the Spirit, right, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. When it tells us to produce the fruit of the Spirit, what is it saying? It's saying that every time we get with the Holy Spirit, we go into the promised land. Because heaven is not a place, it's a person. Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. And so when we are in the Holy Spirit, we produce fruit. And we bring that fruit with us to work. We bring that fruit with us to the place where things are going wrong. We bring that fruit with us to the place where things are broken. We bring it from the promised land into the present to let people know when they see patience on your life, when they see gentleness in your life, when they see self-control in your life, it's telling them slowly that heaven is a real place. And they see it in the fruit that you're bringing into the wilderness. But I want to show you something very interesting as I close with this. There's a reason why we don't have every blessing. And I'm not just talking about tangible blessings. I'm also talking about virtue blessings like patience. Because it's kind of funny. If you're in the waiting stage, think about this. In order to wait, you have to have patience. Agreed? But patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So patience only comes when we're reaping. (laughs) But if I have to wait to get to reaping, but patience only comes when I'm reaping, then what the heck do I do while I'm waiting? Because the patience is a fruit that I'm waiting for. How do you patiently wait for patience? Does anybody read the Bible like this, like a psychopath? Am I the only one? Like, I need help, I think. Stephanie, did you just say yes? God is like, you're doing too much. Just stop it. Stop it. Sometimes God allows blessing to grow slowly because we're not strong enough to handle the weight of fruit. It has been more true in my life In less than one year, I went from it just being me and Jacqueline and regular nine-to-five jobs to being a parent and a pastor so fast. And one of the first things you realize right away is the weight of blessing can be crippling if you're not strong enough to hold it. Watch what happens in the book of Acts. I want you to see this. Just before the Holy Spirit comes, it says this, and I'm, I'm closing with this. It says this in Acts. Acts 1, starting in verse 12. Jesus tells them to go wait in the upper room. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. This is where Jesus told them to be. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, if I was writing Acts, the next verse would be, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. Because the Bible just told us everyone's in the upper room. Everyone is there. Even Mary is there. The whole kit and caboodle is there. Everyone did what Jesus said. Now let's have the Holy Spirit come. But that's not what happens. There's a tiny little story sandwiched in between everybody getting to the upper room and the Holy Spirit coming. And it's the story of Peter standing up and saying, we used to have 12 people. And now we only have 11. We need to get a 12th person again. And they choose Matthias. And he becomes the new 12th apostle. And then the Holy Spirit comes. It's interesting that before the fruit of God comes, they first strengthen their leadership because their leadership had a hole in it. And then the Holy Spirit comes. That order is not an accident. They strengthened the core of their leadership, and then the Holy Spirit comes. This is why we have elders and deacons pastoring with me and Jacqueline. Because we as a church cannot bear the weight of the fruit that God wants to grow in our life if we don't constantly pray for our leaders. If we don't constantly hold up the ones that have devoted themselves to serving all of us. I want you to know something. I have sat down with other pastors recently and they ask about our organizational structure here, and I have watched a grown man begin to cry when I write down how our church is structured, and he said, is this for real? I'm like, yes. He goes, what is their goal when they meet with you? To, to pray for me, to, to ask what they could do to help, to see what God is saying, to, to offer counsel and suggestion. He said, their goal isn't, they don't babysit you? I'm like, no. And he just starts crying. He's like, how do I get this? I'm like, I don't know. I just took over. Like, <laughs> some, somebody went to Tulsa and boop, here I am. Like, this is, this is dope. I found a golden ticket in a, in a chocolate bar, and next thing you know, I own the factory. Like, this is, this is what's happened. <laughs> Come on, Grandpa Joe. <laughs> like, you don't understand. I, listen to me, Salem, I don't fully understand what we have here. I want you to know that you need to pray for your elders and deacons by name as much as you can. It's part of why the Holy Spirit will show up here. It is important. I used to think it was arrogant that Peter and Paul in all of their letters, usually at the beginning and the end, were always like, pray for me. Like the churches are being persecuted so bad and they're like, pray for us. And I'm like, why just like pray for them? And then I became a pastor, and three minutes later, I'm like, yeah, I know why they say that now. I know why they say that now. It is so humbling for all of us. We sat in an elder meeting. All we did was just talk about these decisions about how we're going to open the church to one service. 
it can be agonizing sometimes. Your leaders work. They work. And they work as volunteers, and they treat it like it's a job. They work really hard. They read really well. They pray faithfully. And it is so important, starting from me through all of us, that we constantly lift up our elders and deacons. Take them seriously when they speak. Go to them with issues you're having. Let them know that you're willing to hear what they have to say because these men and women work. And it is not common what we have here. And the more we lift them up and the more we pray for them, and for that matter, the more we lift up all the leaders of all the governing bodies, whether you voted for them or not, the more we lift them up, the stronger the place might get for the Spirit to come and produce fruit that actually weighs. But we need to be strong to receive the weight of blessing. Blessing can be so heavy it can break your branches off. So sometimes you're not getting blessed, not because you're doing something wrong, just because God wants you to do a few more push-ups. Get those branches a little stronger, because sometimes blessing is heavy. And if you're not ready, it can break, which is why we need not just a pastor, but our elders and deacons, our ministry leaders, the people who clean, the people who lead worship for us, Salem. We have to constantly be praying for that ethos of the church because as it remains strong, we can produce fruit. This is just a sermon of reminder. Let's stand to our feet this morning. I cannot wait until I can put this bread in your hands again and we're not too far away from it. But in the meantime, take your juicy cups. <sighs> can everybody just, just sit with me for a moment in the presence of God? Just take in for a moment what we're about to do. We're about to do this in remembrance of him. Our church family is growing. We have fought our way through isolation and pandemic. In the midst of that pandemic were issues facing the nation and the world that could have been crippling and somehow the spirit gave us ways to commune and talk and share and cry on each other's shoulders and hold each other up. Can we just take a minute and realize, pause and realize what God has done here? It is miraculous what he has done in this place. And the common denominator for every church for thousands of years has been the very cornerstone coming to this meal and saying essentially, he went into a tomb and walked out of it. Nothing can stop us. Even if we pass from life into death, it will just be said of us that we fell asleep because death no longer exists that way. Jesus said, 
Lazarus is asleep, I go to wake him. Because Christ has overcome the grave. Yes, some of us might take a nap soon. But Jesus is going to wake us up. So every issue that somehow enters our life connected to death. One day what is true of Christ will be true of us. And this simple meal that you're holding in your hand is everything to remind you that whatever you're facing, if it's horrible, not only will you get through it, but all the thorns it produced will one day be turned into a lush garden. And if things are going well, this meal reminds you, do not let the wellness of your situation make you think that it's as good as it can be. Because even the best things in our life right now need to be redeemed by the hand of God. There is nothing right now that is so good that God doesn't need to touch it. And there's nothing in our life so bad that God won't. But this meal has been at the cornerstone of a group of people who from Passover all the way to Eucharist and beyond, they have thrived in persecution, thrived in crisis, thrived when it got dark, and at the center of it was a Passover meal which became a Eucharist meal which says, even when the worst things happen, God happens harder to those things. Just a simple meal. Just a simple meal. On the night when our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, on Friday, I'm going to sow my body. On Saturday, you're going to wait. And on Sunday, you're going to reap. On Friday, he sowed. On Saturday, we waited. And on Sunday, the harvest began. And I'm looking at every one of you. And I'm looking into your life. I know so many of you so personally. The harvest that began on that first Easter is still happening in every soul I'm looking at right now. It continues to thrive. We continue to wake up. We continue to walk out of our tombs. We continue to walk out of the things that enslave us because that first shoot popped up. Now all of these shoots are starting to pop up. So we feast on the first fruit of the harvest in anticipation that the rest is going to come. And it's not just going to come onto you. It's also going to come through you, Salem. The harvest of the kingdom of God is going to come through your life. It's not something that you're waiting to have happen to you. It's something that is going to sprout up within you and happen from you. It's so much greater than we could ever imagine. After supper, he took the chalice, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it to remember me even though grapes get crushed and trodden under people's feet, I'll still turn it into a feast. If you feel broken and if you feel crushed, 
And if you feel spilled this morning, Jesus is holding you up saying, what a feast. They don't even know. Everything you think is broken, everything you think is spilled, you call it a mess, Jesus calls it the Eucharist. You call it a waste, Jesus says the food and drink of new and unending life in him. Holy Spirit, I pray that you fall on this bread, that you fall on this cup, that you make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you fall right now on every one of our crushed and broken situations. I pray that you gather that valley of dry bones. I pray that you gather the fragments that are on the ground. I pray that you gather everything that seems so frustrating and so wasteful to us right now. I pray that you gather it. I pray that you hold it. I pray that you hold it up. I pray that you give thanks, and I pray that you give it back to us in a way that reveals your goodness in places we never thought to experience it before. And I pray that we leave here in the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I pray that every single person here watching online would sow their hearts into the gospel faithfully, would wait patiently together in the midst of life's unresolved issues, and would reap the fruit of the Spirit for the life of the world generously. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, and everybody said... Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.